Well, as we turn to the God's Word this morning, we just have finished a series through the book of the Revelation, and um, well, there was a lot of time spent in the book of Revelation, because there's an important piece to that, and that is that our Lord is coming. In the midst of difficulties, in the midst of troubles, know this, our Lord is coming. Now, we spent a lot of time going chapter by chapter through that book, and then I turn to Matthew 24, and it gets me to thinking. I wonder if John, I wonder if John had this um, sense when he's receiving the visions of the of the revelation that he's like, oh yeah, the Lord told us about that before. Oh yeah, the Lord told us that was going to happen. And he said it was going to happen like this. Because some of the key events that are described in the book of the Revelation and the main thrust out of it, the purpose, was given in an earlier condensed form in Matthew 24 and stretching into 25. And so we're going to, while you have some of the thinking of Revelation in mind still, it was, it was just last week, so I hope that you do, uh, I want us to turn to, to Matthew 24 and just get a little, um, one more, kind of going back, and, and, and what Matthew does very well is he reminds us the purpose of this hope. What difference does it make? Why do we need to know these things? Now, before we jump into the chapter, I want to ask another question. What is it that impresses you? What makes you go, wow? What gets your attention? What could cause you to maybe be distracted? Maybe draw your attention away from something else that's actually more important right now. For those of you football fans, I can, uh, you've seen this happen, one game or another, you've seen it happen, it'll, it happens before, it'll happen again, that there is a bullet of a pass coming through, and there's a window of opportunity, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a lane there, and the ball is coming through, the receiver's ready, he's, he's open, but, but a defender is closing fast, and so just as he's ready, he's got his hands out, he's going to catch the ball, but just before the ball gets there, he turns and looks, because the defender is closing fast. And just before the ball gets there, he turns and looks, and he starts to make his move, and he took his eye off the ball. And what happens? That's an incomplete pass. The game clock stops, and if you're trying to save time, that could be a good thing. But the play's dead. It didn't happen. It's all for nothing. Because he took his eye off the ball. Before it got there, he's distracted by something else. And an opportunity was lost. Well, there's a, a time here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus' disciples have something else that, that catches their attention. And it reminded me of, well, as we were talking about this in our morning Bible study, it reminded me how things in life can, can grab hold of us and can, and can take us off in another pursuit in a different direction. One of the guys was telling a story back in the day when he was, he was involved in, in audio production and show promotions, and, and he, was, he was chasing after the dream. He says, one time, their little outfit, they had a national headliner that they were promoing the show and this star was coming in that everybody would know and this was a really big deal. They were, they were making it. 
This was going to go somewhere. They were going to be somebody. And, and it's going to the airport to pick up this star, whoever it was, and their entourage. And it was a really big deal. You don't want to blow any of this. And they, they're picking these people up. And it's like, wow, these are, these are the stars. And, and, they, and they say, well, we're kind of hungry. Could we, could, we, could we stop and get something neat, you know, before we go to the hotel or venue, whatever it, is that it, it was that we're going to? It's like, well, okay, well. Stopping for food wasn't in the contract, but yeah, okay, you know, you're just whatever. And uh, so where do you guys want to go? And you kind of calculating how much this is going to cost. And, oh, let's just run through McDonald's. McDonald's. Oh, okay, man, these are these, these, they're real people too. And, okay, we'll go to McDonald's. They go through the McDonald's drive-in, and they get all their orders in, all the burgers and everything, you know. And, and they, they come up to the window, and as they're getting to the window to pay, then Everybody's going through their pockets and their purses trying to come up with enough cash and coin to, to, to pay this bill. And they can't cover it. They're stars. They've made it. They've got all this money, and yet they can't come up with enough coin to cover McDonald's. And that's when he said he realized for the first time, this isn't real. There is, a, there is a thing put out here that makes these people to be something, live in the dream, and yet it's hollow. They can't even cover their own McDonald's. They need me to do that for them. Is that the first time he, he got a glimpse of it? It reminded me of a story in my life a long time ago because, well, I was young then. And it was when Julie and I, the first year we were married, we were living at that time in Spokane. And uh, we were part of a church, and so the church had, a, had, had, had small groups, and we were in a small group that met at Spence and Linda's home. Now, you don't know Spence and Linda. That's okay. Spence was an architect and a contractor builder. He designed and then built custom-built homes, some beautiful homes around Spokane. And we met in their home for our small group because Spence had built it. And he, he designed and built beautiful homes. And uh, so we were over there. I think it was like a Saturday or something. We were there early and it was for a barbecue and we got lots of time. And, and he, he's telling us, hey, I've got these, these, these new houses that I'm building. They're up on the hill overlooking the Spokane River. And they are beautiful. The view is outstanding. You guys want to run up and see them? And we said, oh, yeah, sounds like fun. So we got in a couple of cars and we headed up there, wasn't very far away, and, and we're, we're walking through these new homes, still under construction, but you can tell what the layout is going to be like, right? It's, it's still rough, they're rough and open, but you can, you can see the rooms, and you can tell, okay, okay there, here's the dining room, and here's the, here's the living space, and, and you have this beautiful view out over the river, and these homes are going to be fantastic. And somewhere in that tour, I remember our pastor, Ken, he comes up alongside this, this um, young guy, and I don't know, maybe he's on the corner of his eye, he saw me like this. And he just thought it probably time to just plant a, a seed of wisdom for Bob. And he, he just comes alongside, and he says, you know, Bob, he said, as nice as these things are, they're just not going to last. Life is really about so much more than these things. And he planted a seed there that seems to have stuck because I still remember the conversation. I still remember the moment. And I appreciated that somebody at a time when I probably needed to hear it bothered to take the time 
to tell me something, not quite sure yet how I would take it. Because the disciples also had a moment like that. The disciples had a moment when they were, wow, look at this. They had come again to Jerusalem. And this is like, this is like small town meets Manhattan, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're country guys. They're, they're small town, north, Galilee, and they're in Jerusalem again. And they're, they're at the, the center of, of, of Jewish Israel. They're at the temple, and the temple is beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's one of the most fantastic temples in the world in its day. And they're, they're in awe over these buildings. And, and his disciples came, it says in, in Matthew 24, verse 1. He came to point out to Jesus the buildings of the temple. Wow, look at this, as if Jesus hadn't seen them. In Luke 21, it's expanded a little bit. How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. There you could tell that there was a lot of extra money that was given in to embellish and decorate this temple facility. And the great stones that were used, you know, the largest of the stones in the foundation of the, uh, of the retaining wall of the, of, the, of the Temple Mount, it's known as the Western Wall today. But when Herod built the temple, first he expanded the entire Temple Mount, made it much larger in area than it was before by building this huge retaining wall. And one of the foundation stones in that wall is 45 feet long by 12 by 12 foot high and 14 feet wide. They, they estimate it weighs 570 tons. You can go to Israel and you can see, you can, you can go down these tunnels along the western wall and you can see this massive stone, or at least one side of it. And yet 570 tons, I can't wrap my brain around this, so here's a statistic to help. That's roughly the equivalent of two Boeing 777s loaded down with tourists and their luggage after shopping in Israel, okay? There are, in this same wall, 80-ton stones that are 100 feet up above the foundation level. It's amazing. It was an amazing construction feat in its day, this grand temple that Herod had built. And yet Jesus answers them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be cast down. Now, what did that look like? Let's take a look. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, you could walk down this same street. It's one of my favorite places. You can, in fact, you can see those dressed stones that are part of these little shops here. You can tell those are from Herod's construction because of the framing that they have around them. That, that, that's a first century street. In fact, this may be the street when Jesus and his disciples were, would have been up in the temple complex. They often would have been in what's called Solomon's Porch because that was one of the places where Jesus would teach. And so they would come out of Solomon's porch. They would go down across this bridge that's now known as, the location of it is known as Robinson's Arch. They would cross over that bridge and come down this wide staircase that was built over the top of these shops, these first century shops. They would have then walked likely on this very first century street. Now, it's a, it's, it's a little buckled today, but there's a reason for that. If you just, so this is a place where you can go in Jerusalem today and say, Jesus and his disciples probably walked right by here. They may have stopped and got something in one of those shops. But if you turned and 
looked on the other side, you would see the fulfillment of Jesus' words. These are stones that are left from when the Romans destroyed the temple up on the Temple Mount above that retaining wall in the background. And they took all the stones of all the buildings, the, the porticos around and the temple building itself, and they not only knocked them down up there on the Temple Mount, but they also pushed them over the edge, a lot of them right off the platform. And some of those stones still sit there today. The stones cry out as a testimony that God's word is true of the things that will not last. God's word is true about what would happen in this temple. Not one stone would, be, would remain upon another. They would all be thrown down. And you can go and see some of those stones even today. Jesus' words were true. Well, they got to thinking about that. They're mulling it over as they leave Jerusalem and go across the valley and up the Mount of Olives. And there, up at the Mount of Olives, you can look down on the whole temple area, but from another perspective, from higher up, above it, you can look down onto the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives, and it looks a little smaller from there, too. Sometimes perspective makes a difference. And they're sitting there remembering Jesus' words about how temporary that which was so distracting and awe-inspiring that had captured their attention. They're thinking that over and they ask Jesus, tell us, when will these things be, this time of trouble that you described that's going to result in the temple being destroyed, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples seem to take the destruction of Jerusalem, and obviously there's going to be wars or troubles at that time. They seem to merge that together with the coming again the return of Jesus because he said he's going to be going away and then he's going to return they merge that together with the end of this age all those things they see it all happening together and it's not surprising that they understood it that way it's the simplest way to understand it and so in Matthew 24 from verse 5 now following Jesus is going to take their question he's going to pull it apart He's going to identify there's actually three different questions you've asked. There are signs of the troubles of this present age. There are the, the sign when this age has come to its end. What is this the sign of the end of the age? And then immediately following the end of this age, there is, there is the sign of Jesus' coming. So basically, Jesus is going to give them a compact version of the book of Revelation. That's why I think John later on could say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Lord told us that. Because that's what Matthew 24 is going to give here as we walk very briefly through it. I, don't, I, I wanted to, to walk through this while you had Revelation still fairly in mind because what I really want to spend our time on this morning is the implications of it, the so what. The what difference does that make? Why did Jesus tell them these things? We got a little taste of that in Revelation where in the midst of the troubles that the church is in, the hardship and the suffering... The Lord is reminding them of the hope that is set before them. Jesus is coming. And he is going to make all that's wrong right. He is going to vindicate their faith in him. Our Lord comes. So, here, he, he unpacks those three things. First of all, in, in verses 5 to 15, basically Jesus describes there are going to be destruction and calamities. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. The birth pains of a broken creation will continue. And those of you that have been associated with a birth could understand that. 
Well, actually, all of you have been associated with a birth, haven't you? With childbirth. Yes, you all came, through, came, came here that way. But probably most of you don't remember it. But if you've been around somebody else's birth, then you understand this whole thing about birth pains that, that can start and can continue and can grow in intensity. But there can be labor, but then it stops and there's a pause. And there's an increasing urge, is there not, for this all to be over with? Well, all of that parallels the coming of the Lord. Do you, do you not long for His coming? Are there not times in the midst of trouble that you long for his day? Well, the troubles of this life are simply a reminder that God's word is true concerning broken humanity that does lead to wars and rumors of wars and destruction and, and, and all the things that humans do to humans. And even the creation itself groans and travails, Paul says in labor pains until now, that we are broken people in a broken world and God's word is true concerning these present troubles and so God's word will be true about our Lord's return, about his restoration of all things as well. These troubles as they're described are the kinds of things that are also described in the, in the, in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and even in the early judgments in, in Revelation chapter 6. But then Jesus gets to the specific sign of the end of the age. That in the middle of the tribulation, something very specific is going to happen. Look at chapter 24 and verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. If we went back to Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12, where Daniel just refers to this particular abomination, a statue of a man, an idol of a man set in the temple to be worshipped as God, and that's going to happen at the end of the age. In fact, um, it's described in Revelation chapter 13 where an image of the Antichrist is put into the temple and even the appearance at least of life is given to that idol and people are commanded to worship it just like people in the past were commanded to worship that idol that King Nebuchadnezzar built, that statue that he had made. It's described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this way. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Idolatry here will reach its worst, and Christ will come to put an end to it. So that's going to happen. That is the sign at the end of the age. When you see a temple in Jerusalem and installed in that temple an idol, the image of a man that people are commanded to worship as God, then you'll know time has run out. And that'll occur, as we understand from, from the book of Revelation, at the middle of the tribulation. There's three and a half years left. And now this brings us to the one specific sign of Jesus' coming. There are a lot of signs of the character of the age. And lots of books have been written about them. But you don't need to buy any of those books to find out what is the sign of Jesus' coming, because it's none of them. There will be wars and rumors of wars. They will continue. There will be earthquakes. There will be disasters. But there's one specific sign of Jesus' return, and it parallels Revelation chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 19. It's described here in Matthew 24 from verse 27. 
As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There is going to be a sign of his coming. There's going to be a visible indicator of his coming that will stretch across the whole sky just as lightning does. Now, it's not an instantaneous flash and it's gone like lightning does. That's not the point. He says as lightning goes across the whole sky and everybody anywhere can see it, that's what this will be like. Well, what is this like that's going to be that visible? Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Revelation chapter 16, the bold judgments. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. This is where you'll see it. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, all the peoples, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It has gone dark. Earth is dark. God reaches up and he pulls that little chain that hangs out of the sun. I don't know if you've seen it. He pulls that down. And the sun goes out. It is dark, dark, dark. And then in the midst of that darkness, the Shekinah glory of God, the visible presence of God comes across the heavens toward the planet and humanity upon it. And they see this glory approaching into their darkness. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And they, they, they cry out in fear at his coming, because it seems to them an alien invasion, but it's not. This is the creator of the, of the world returning to restore his creation. Lots of books have been written about lots of signs of his coming, but there it is. When you see everything go dark, and then you see, well, I don't think we'll be waiting to see it. But when Antichrist declares himself to be God in the temple, that's the end of the age. Three and a half years, start the timer. When the lights go out in heaven and earth, everyone will see his glorious return. You won't need to buy anybody's book at that time to recognize it. A darkened world will see the light of the world approaching. Now Jesus had heard his disciples' fascination with the temporary temple of Herod. It's not as grand as they think it is. Oh, it's wonderful from human standards. Parts of it are even gold-plated. Compare that to God's city, which will be made of pure gold. This temple is not going to last. This temple is going to fall. In fact, within a year or two of the temple being completed, it will be torn down. After the finishing touches have just been made, it will be torn apart and be gone. God's city and the new heaven and new earth that he will create is forever. Jesus tells his disciples to not be too in awe of what this world boasts and what this world can accomplish. Look what we can build. Focus on God's future. He now uses several parables to draw the implications. It's nice to know when Jesus is coming. It's nice to know what's going to happen. But that really doesn't do us any good today unless the hope of his coming so redirects our attention that it changes how we then live. And that's what he now begins to push 
into? What difference does this make? What does being clear on the hope of his coming, how does that change the realities of life today? And the first thing he says is that it causes us to live for more than just today. It causes us to choose more than just everyday normal. And he uses an example from the days of Noah to make the point. Look at chapter 24 and verse 38. Well, actually, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Sounds scandalous, doesn't it? You hear what they're doing? Well, they're eating and drinking. Oh, wait. I was just eating and drinking this morning. I was eating and drinking yesterday. That doesn't sound so bad. They were marrying and they were giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Normalcy. They will be going on with life as if the present moment in which we live is the thing and there's nothing more beyond it. Peter grabs that, 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 that same illustration when he talks about you'll be challenged, you will be mocked, your faith will be ridiculed. They will say, where is the promise of it coming? Haven't things continued from the creation until now? And yet they forget. They forget Noah. People said the same thing then. They'll be carrying on if life is, is everything is normal and nothing's ever going to change. There is no accountability. We do the everyday things. This is just how life is. Everybody does things like this. Everybody lives this way with jam-packed schedules. With, well, I'll go ahead and spend that $500 on that thing that I really don't have and I probably don't need, but it's on sale. I can save 20%. You know, there's this thing called math. And it would suggest that maybe it's not wise to spend $500 that you don't really have in order to save $100 because you still lose $500. I don't know. It's a thing called math. It's normal to have $5,500 balance on your credit cards. That's the average credit card balance continuing month by month that people can be paying up to 30% interest on. But that's normal. Everybody's got credit card bills. If that's normal, how about being weird? How about paying off the balance monthly? Working, building, saving, bigger barns, and then there's inflation or there's a crash and it all gets drained away. You know, we live in this marvelous economic age that they don't even have to raise your taxes to take your money. They can just print more money. And then the money that you have is worth 10% less than it was before because what? They added a whole bunch more money into the mix. Everybody has more. What you've got is worth less. But you're saying, wow, this is really good because you think the government just gave you something. It's a strange age in which we live. But it's easily for those things that we would work in that seem solid and valuable and enduring. And yet all of a sudden it vanishes like crypto on FTX. 
Where did it go? Nobody knows. Maybe it wasn't really ever there to begin with. I don't know. But that's normal. But you and I are like Noah in this story. The disciples and we as followers of Jesus are to be like Noah who know his day is coming. And so you keep inviting, you keep saying, come into the ark before it's too late. During this broken present, you are working towards God's future. You're not planting for next spring because you know the earth's about to, about to flood. You're instead inviting people to come into God's rescue. Not following today's norms also means following Jesus as a servant of others. He builds on this example in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed... Maybe he's not coming at all. He begins to beat his fellow servants. He eats and drinks with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. So he says there's a wise servant. And that wise servant, while we are waiting for our Lord's return, what faithful and wise servants should be doing, well, they are given care of the master's household. They're given responsibility, then they're entrusted with the responsibility to care for others around them. It's something that would link, I think, with our, with, with our, our purpose that we seek to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. That we're going to know him in the helping of others to know him. We're going to be following him in helping others follow him because that's what Jesus did. And so if we're going to be following him, we're going to be doing what he does. And what he was doing was seeking and saving those who were lost and leading them towards his eternal kingdom. So that's what we would be doing. We often think in terms of Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. So don't be doing the things you shouldn't be doing. Don't we often think of the Christian life that way? Jesus is watching. But that's a, that's a terribly shallow way to live the Christian life. That is missing so much. I was reminded by one of the guys in our, in our group on Monday. He said his favorite bumper sticker that he ever saw. He wanted to get some for the church. I said, no, let's not. But it could be fun. The bumper sticker was really simple. You know, bumper sticker's got to be short. It's got to make the point. And here, here it was. Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> Isn't that great? Look busy. <laughs> that's, that's often how we see it. Well, Jesus is coming. I better look busy. I much prefer Martin Luther's response. One time Martin Luther was asked, Martin, what would you do? This is a good probing question. What would you do if you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow? And it's reported that Martin Luther's re reply was really quick. He had no, he had to think about this when he said, well, I'd go, I'd go out and plant an oak tree. Martin, Martin, if the Lord is coming tomorrow, tomorrow, one day away, why would you go plant an oak tree? An oak tree is going to take decades, maybe a hundred years to fully mature. Why would you plant an oak tree if the Lord is coming tomorrow? He said, well, when the Lord comes, I want him to find me doing something that will last. When the Lord comes, I want him to find me 
When the Lord comes, I want him to find us doing that which will last. Focus not on all the things of this life merely, but rather in this life working toward, leaning toward, pressing toward his future. What are the things that will last? That's what matters then, right? What are those things that will last? If we can only know what things will last. Okay, I want you to pause right here. I want you to look around the room. No, no, you're still looking at me. Look around the room. No, turn your head. It does turn. It's got a neck and everything. Look at that. Come on, turn. Look around. Look around. These are who will last. These people around you, and maybe include a few empty spots where there's room for others not here yet. These are those who will last. And these are who we are called to care for within our master's household. On the other hand, there is a servant who forgets about his master's return. He takes his eye off the ball. Rather than he begins to use others to serve himself, he takes advantage of others for his own ambitions because he's not even thinking anymore about the future. When his Lord returns, he's wrapped up in the present and what he can squeeze out of it. Now we need to consider that because there's something in us in fallen humanity that is wired just that way. We easily can default to considering what works here for me? What do I get out of this? How do I take advantage of this situation? It is easier for me by default to pursue my own ambitions rather than the Lord's ambitions. And I'm going to need to be intentional if I'm going to change that. I need to make intentional choices to live differently and that's what our Lord is calling us to. But it's not merely that well, you are the Lord's servants, and the master is, of the house is returning, and he's given you a job to do, so you better do it because God is the boss. Again, we can easily look at the Christian life on those kind of terms, and we will miss the beauty of it. We will miss the joy of what our God is doing in our midst. It's, it's, it's closer to God has given you and I an honor. God has given you and I a privilege a privilege that he doesn't give to just anyone. And he has a role for you in particular that is for you and none other. This is yours that he would put in your hands. It's his gift to you. Don't take it lightly. It's kind of like in this life being asked to be part of a wedding party. Somebody wants you to be one of their bridesmaids, one of their groomsmen. That's the next image that the Lord puts for us here in chapter 25. And I know I'm working through these fairly quickly. I'm trying to save some time for the last one. But imagine a heaven, no, or rather a, a wedding. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now in the first century there would be a wedding procession. At some point, after, long after the betrothal, the, the bridegroom procession would leave from the home of the bridegroom and would go to where the bride was and unannounced and, and this would be in the evening or at night and they would come to receive the bride and her bridal party, her bridesmaids and then there would be this procession that would proceed back to the place of the wedding. 
And because it was at night, there would be torches. The, the text read lamps, but it's also the word that means torches. And so you needed the torches. There were no street lights. So if you wanted to, to make this uh, glorious and celebratory procession, you had to have torchlight. And you needed oil for the torches or the lamps. And, but what's happened is the groom has been delayed. We don't know why. It wasn't normal for this procession to happen at midnight. That's the whole point of the story. It was delayed far longer than people expected. And yet the shout goes out, the bridegroom comes. And they all trim their lamps. And, and five of them didn't bring any extra oil. They have no extra oil. They try to get some from the others. And the others selfishly won't share their oil. Now what's wrong with that? They can't share their oil. If they take the five that have oil left, if they take their oil and split it and share it with the others, halfway back, everybody's lamp goes out. And the wedding procession is ruined. So you're better to go with the five that you've got and the others scurry as quick as they can to try to get more oil so they can join in. But they don't make it. It's kind of like this. Imagine there's a wedding. Oh, let's say it's Mallory's wedding. Mallory has her, has, has, has her girlfriends. They've, they've been with her for a while. They're going to be part of her, her, her ceremony. And it's a ways off, but it's coming. Well, one of them works. Let's just say at Chick-fil-A. I don't know if anyone does. I hope the story's not getting too close. But, but let's say one of them works at Chick-fil-A. And while she's at working at Chick-fil-A, so she gets this text from one of the other girls. That says, hey, we're all, we're all meeting at Mallory's. Can, 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 can you come? And... Um, well, you know, texts are kind of short and don't always give all the details. So she's at work, but she's almost off. She says, yeah, I can be there like at 3. Is that okay? Yeah, okay, well, hurry, get here as soon as you can. Okay, so she's delayed a little more at work, but she gets off. She heads over there. She's still got her, you know, red polo on from Chick-fil-A. But hey, it's Chick-fil-A. It's pretty cool. A little casual, but all right. So she comes in. She's going to hang with the other girls, right? She gets in there, and their hair is all done up. You know, with the makeup. And they've all, it's weird, they've all got these matching dresses. Isn't that weird? Why do they do that? She's like, what are you guys, why are you, oh no, today's the wedding? I forgot I didn't realize it was today. Well, quick, where's your dress? Well, I don't have it with me, it's back at the house. So, so well, quick, go and get it. So, so she runs back and she got to go all the way across town to get her dress, get it on, try to do something with her hair, get back. Time, time she gets back to the wedding. It's almost over. It's too late. And she missed her opportunity. You and I have been given a particular unique opportunity by the Lord to participate in what he's doing. And it's not uh, something he told us to do that he expects you to do. It's an honor that has been placed in our hands. With that idea of carefully fulfilling the privileged roles given to each of us, I want to turn to the one final picture that I want to spend a little more time on, and that is that we are to invest our talents in the Lord's priorities. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14 to 30, and I want to read this whole section and talk about it just a little bit. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. 
But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, too long, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now hold on to that because we'll come back to that. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you, del- you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew myself, I was quite sure, that you are a hard man. You reap where you did not sow, you gather where you scattered no seed, you take for yourself that which you have no rightful claim to. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. I was afraid to take any chances. But his master answered him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and you believe that I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. God has entrusted to us giftings, resources, opportunity. Our master has gone away for a while. He will be coming back. Meanwhile, he's entrusted his giftings, his resources into our hands. Will we use them or will we neglect them? I like that word, talents, because it can also describe giftings and abilities. That's how we would use it today, although that's not necessarily the actual meaning in the text. But let's, let's start there, for instance. God has gifted and equipped each one of us differently. You're only responsible for what he's given you. You're not responsible for what you can't do that somebody else can do. You should assume you cannot do certain things. Others are gifted that way. You're gifted another way. That's how the body is put together. There's no need to compare yourself to anyone else or their results. Only will you be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to each one of us a gift is given for the good of the body of Christ. Each one of us has a gift to use. Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, let us use them. I love that exhortation. Whatever gift you have, use it. For Peter says the same thing. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God provides. So that in all these things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in you. We're not told necessarily to know what our gifts are. We're actually told to use them. 
But often knowing is helpful in, in, in using them and putting them into service, right? Well, if you told me I was a teacher before I started teaching, I and most people I knew would have thought you're silly. That's, that is the craziest thing I ever heard. There was a time when I could not finish a sentence without stammering so badly. I couldn't complete one sentence. I know. Now look what God has done. You can't get me to stop. But along the way, once I started teaching in various areas as the Lord gave opportunity and nudged me into it, it was almost, as, as, as Paul's words, stirring up the gift that God had put. Oftentimes, gifting is found in the using. That's why I like to, what well, you can do with spiritual gift inventories, those are fine, but I like to ask a couple of questions. One of those is, what, in your opinion... From your perspective, what is it that the church needs to be doing? What the church needs to be doing is fill in the blank. And how you fill in that blank may be an indication of the sensitivity God has given you and a way in which you should be stepping into and serving, making that to happen within the church. Oftentimes people will come to me with a great ministry opportunity. They're quite sure the church needs to be doing this. And my question to them is then, not, well, great, how should I do that? I don't need more things to do. No, my question is going to be, what do you need from the church in order to take the next step in doing that? What do you need from the church body as a whole in order for you to step into what God has obviously or apparently put into your hands and helped you to see? Or another question, what's... What do you think, just in general, what do you think is really most important in a church? What's most important in any church is, and how you answer that question, is possibly one of the areas that you ought to be serving in. Take a next step in making that happen within your church. Do you have a place? Do you have a place where you give yourself away in some way for the good, the benefit, the spiritual help of others? If you don't, I'd encourage you, go to that next step wall out there in an area of serving opportunities. Maybe there's something there that the Lord would have you to see. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to one of the pastors or an elder, one of the deacons, deaconesses. Somebody that you look up to and somebody who knows you how could you take a next step in giving yourself away and what God has given you for the benefit and blessing of others? Now, I'd be dodging. If I'd be dodging what God's Word is really clearly saying here, if I didn't point out, but what the Lord gave them to carry out His purpose in this parable, the parable of the talents, what the Lord gave them was a big pile of money. Remember when we gave one five talents and one two talents and one one talent? Do you wonder what a talent is? Well, a talent in today's money, would be somewhere between 600000 and a million dollars. That's a lot of money. So he has given them a pile of money to work with while he's gone. What, so i got to ask this question. Now, now, now pull your toes back if you, if you, if, if you need. You don't want to get them stepped on here. But, but what are you doing with the money that God has given you responsibility over? Now, I worded that a little bit differently. I did not say, what are you doing with the money God has given you? I said, what are you doing with the money that God has given you responsibility over? It belongs to Him. Everything belongs to Him. We are simply stewards of it. We use it according to how our Lord would have us to use it. Do you give 
to God's purposes? Is it intentional or is it occasional? Well, I got a little left. I guess I could give that. There's a biblical pattern of a tithe, a tenth. Now, you can press into that and following the examples out of the law too, too much and you're going to find yourself a bit confused because there are many of the farmers, the, the herdsmen and, and, uh, who had fields who are going to, over the course of several years, give much more than 10%. There are others whom the 10%, the tithe out of the field or out of the flocks doesn't seem to apply. I don't find how a builder in construction gives a tenth of his building, for instance. So, if you're, if you're choosing your vocation and you're concerned about the tithe, you might want to be careful what vocation you choose. Construction might save you some coin, you see, over, over farming, fields and flocks. But that's not really the point, is it? Even before, when, when God delivered Abraham, and Abraham has a windfall out of God's deliverance, he gives a tenth of it. So there's a pattern of giving a portion, and it's a ratio or percentage portion out of what I have that I intentionally devote that to the Lord to honor the Lord, not because God needs any of it, but because I need to give it. I need to in a very tangible and real way that impacts my life and that I feel and am connected to. I need to express and experience my faith in sacrifice, giving in a way that costs me something. That's how I set priorities. You use your, your, your money for that which matters to you. Somebody said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your priorities. Well, you don't carry checkbooks anymore. So we'd have to look at the debit card or the credit card statement. You know, the how did you get to that $5,500 running balance, right? How did that happen? I bet it wasn't priorities. Or I bet it wasn't the priorities that we would like to imagine that we have. It easily creeps up on us. The point of a tenth or any percentage is it's as hard it's as hard to give that tenth if you have a hundred or maybe a thousand than if you have a million. When you're going to give that portion of it away, no matter what the total amount is, that takes intentionality. I have to decide to do that because this is a priority, because my faith in God's future matters more than the things that I could have in the present. I was surprised to learn that 50% of U.S. households in 2021 paid no federal income tax. Now, many of those households received back, at, when they filed their income taxes, they actually received money back, and they didn't pay anything in. They didn't have payroll deductions. They, they never gave any money in, but they received money back. Uh, we thank the rest of you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, right? That's, that's how taxes in America work today. Where, where in a, in a, it, would seem, it would seem that in a society, there, what, you'd want to, what you'd want to encourage, what you'd want to cultivate is a notion that everybody contributes something, some little, some more, but everybody contributes something, and we all have skin in this game together. But no, when you have 57% who aren't paying anything, but many of those are expecting something that they're going to receive from the government instead, which has nothing except they take it from somebody else. We've actually created a majority that can vote to take from others. 
And that simply reinforces this, this self-oriented nature within us and, and ruins and spoils a people. I'm reminded of John F. Kennedy's famous line, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I'm afraid, Kennedy, a line like that would be run out of Washington by either party today. Society may produce a, a, a self-serving population, but God's church, this church is a generous church. I need to say that. By, for example... For example, just this weekend, yesterday, there is a group of ladies in the church called Loving Hands, and they have been working all many months now, taking hidden treasures out of their sewing cupboards and putting things together out of scraps and nothing. And they've been making beautiful things that they assembled together for a bazaar yesterday to support the ministry. Everything that they sold, all the proceeds went to support Options 360. And they raised yesterday in that bazaar over $8,000. We have a generous church. We are, we are meeting our budget. We are meeting our budget because week after week, people are giving generously and sacrificially for the needs of ministry together. In this last year, three new global ministry workers or families have been raising support, which included significant support out of this church body. Our building fund is way beyond where anybody would have imagined it would be at this point in that capital campaign. We, we have current global workers already overseas who came out of this church family who the majority of the support they need to remain on the field comes out of this church body. This is a generous church family. That is God's working within us. And I urge you to give out of what God has put into your hands, not because of certain needs, but to put your treasure into God's working, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't you want to move your heart a little closer towards God's eternity? Don't you want to move your heart a little tor closer towards His kingdom? You can do that. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where you invest your time. You know, I've discovered along the way, projects that I work in, places where I've gotten myself personally involved in ministries, and where I have given significantly out of the resources that I have, where I give is also where I pray. It's because that's where my heart goes. Where your treasure is, where your talents are used, where your time goes, where your testimony is given, that's where your heart will be also. The point is, we are stewards of this work of Brush Prairie Church. We are the stewards entrusted with something valuable and precious that God has laid in our hands. What will we do with it? The work here, the work from here, this is what God has given to us. I should note before we close in Matthew 25, verses 24 and 25, there was one servant who didn't rightly use the resources entrusted to him. Remember the one? He buried it in the ground. All of that potential buried in the ground. Why? Because he assumed that his master was harsh and unfair and would take what he didn't even have a rightful claim to. He was afraid of his master, and so he was afraid to make a mistake. And so we buried it and did nothing. You know, fear of mistake 
Fear of failure, fear of not doing it as well as somebody else, fear of how others might criticize keeps many people from taking the next step and giving themselves in some kind of ministry. Let that not happen here. Rather, we will know, first of all, and thus we will live out among one another that heart of our Lord. One of my favorite expressions of the Christian life is found in 2 Corinthians 5. And it starts like this, for the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ presses us forward. God's love for me in Jesus, what God has done for us in Jesus, constrains us. It, It hems us in and it compels us. It pushes us forward. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all. Then we are all dead in him. This life then does not mean and does not hold claim to us the way that it did before. He died for us that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. We serve him. We give. We will take what seems to be a chance, but in view of eternity is no risk at all. We will do that by faith in this present life, not because we are afraid of him, but because we love him, because he first loved us. Would you pray with me? Father, it is a hard thing to take what we believe that we have and to hold it in an open hand before you. And to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then to do it. Lord, the using of our gifts that you have entrusted to us as stewards, Lord, seems to involve some risk. What if I can't do it? What will people say? What if I fail? Lord, would you... Cause us to be controlled by faith and confidence in you rather than our fears. Father, would you cause us to hold loosely in our hands what you have entrusted to us as a privilege from you to use for your glory. Father, in what we give and how we express generosity and hospitality to others around us, and how we will sacrificially give to support something that will matter for eternity. Lord, would you use us? And Father, would you work in our hearts, setting before us clearly your future, so that it is easier in the present to work towards that, instead of the distractions that are around us. Lord, For those here that that need your nudge, Father, help them to take a next step in trusting you with whatever you've entrusted to them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.